0: Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel
1: Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettekin.
0: Let's start out the show by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors. They donated over at patreon.com slash Scene. This week we had Jessica, Kate, Helen, Laura, Ariel, Tammy, Natasha, Haley, Luke Rowe, Ishan, Elise, Abby, Anthony, Gia, Jonah, Emily, Kelly, Kaylee, Kat, Audrey... Allison, Lou, Sandy, Crystal, Lisa, Becky, Dina, Lauren, Lisa, Lynn, Sarah, Amanda, Ashton, Amy, Gina, Mary, Carrie, Stephanie, Megan, Stephanie, Stephen, Melissa, and Alexandra. Thanks, guys. That was, uh, I'm out of breath. I'm, not, I'm blown away by the amount of patrons we got this week.
1: Yeah. You thanks, guys are guys. amazing.
0: Thanks for supporting the
1: show. Okay. So this week, we're doing an old Hollywood classic, and that is the story of one time starlet Barbara Payton, who is probably more well known for her scandalous personal life and her tragic downfall than she is for her acting career. My primary source for this is her autobiography that has one of the all time greatest titles, I Am Not Ashamed. I mean that's a mantra for all of us I think. Everyone who's everyone who listens to this show that's yeah, our mantra. Seriously. I actually when I saw her her memoir or autobiography I was kind of like I'm actually upset <laughs> cuz that would be a great title for mine. Um yeah. It's a it's a really good book. I don't know if she's the most trustworthy narrator but it's it's an interesting story nonetheless but I'm going to take her for her word. <laughs> Uh, because you know what? Why not? She's not ashamed. So uh, I was actually lucky enough to have ordered, special ordered this from my local library before everything shut down. Otherwise I wouldn't have had it. And it's honestly the most the best source for this story because online it's like pretty much the same thing. You're, you're not getting any really good details. That's why I like reading the books for
0: research, especially yeah. if it's a memoir because they, you can get some details you otherwise wouldn't get.
1: Right. So I think you can get this book on that open source, um, online cause I originally had booked it there. So if you want to try to get it, it's pretty hard to find, but I do think it's worth trying to find, um, when your libraries open up or whatever, it would be a good book club pick for the Hollywood crime scene book club ladies who I know are reading, uh, I think, Scotty Bauer books right now or Scotty Bauer's book. <laughs> Sorry, I had to correct that. It's driving me crazy. So I'm going to start off by uh, reading a part of the prologue of the book because I feel like it will set up our story really nicely. Uh, and and this is from Barbara's book. These are her words. In 1950, a year of unspectacular note in history, except for a Korean skirmish, I was sitting on top of the world and going higher. My peculiar acting talents were worth 10,000 a week and I was in constant demand. Boy, everyone wanted me. I know it sounds unbelievable, but it's true that Gregory Peck, Guy Madison, Howard Hughes, and other big names were dating me. Almost everything I did made headlines. One escapade resulted in a headline, Barbara takes near nude sunbath judge complains i was such a hot hot news that the papers didn't even have to use my last name everyone knew who barbara was it was like ava lana or frankie i was in love crazy in love with one man tom neal and i was engaged to and later married the actor with the most class in hollywood in other words i was the queen bee the nuts and and the the nuts and boiling hot the nuts. Is did that she, like an old saying? Did she call the Korean War a skirmish? <laughs> yes. Look, Barbara has her own way about things, <laughs> Rachel. The odds were a million to one I'd grow old with 20 servants, three swimming pools, and a personal masseuse plus an adoring husband. You should have taken the odds. Today, right now, I live in a rat roach Their friends, infested apartment with not a bean to my name, and I drink too much rose wine. Mm. I don't like what my scale tells me. (laughs) The little money I do accumulate to pay the rent comes from old residuals, poetry, and favors to men. I love the Negro race and I will accept money only from Negroes. She becomes a prostitute and only takes on black male clients, by the way. That's what she's talking about there. Uh, does it all sound depressing to you? Queasy? Well, I'm not ashamed. I have hope. I don't live in rosy hazed memory. I look to the future. So that's how she starts her memoir or her autobiography. What is the difference between an autobiography and a memoir? Uh, I honestly I was like thinking that every time I was like trying to I don't describe know. it. I was like, is memoir like more like, I think this is what happened. <laughs> I don't know. She wrote this with a ghostwriter, by the way, because she was, when she wrote this, she's in a bad state. We'll get to that near I mean, the end. That's a hell
0: of a way to draw people into your book, though.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because you're
0: like, what's going on with this lady?
1: Yeah. I mean, she's not ashamed. The title... <laughs> you got to think there's something coming up that most people might feel ashamed about. <laughs> if the title didn't draw you in, the
0: first pages did.
1: Yeah. That's literally the opening. So let's get started on the story of Barbara Payton. Now... Barbara Payton was born in Minnesota to Flip and Mabel Redfield on November 17th, 1927. The family eventually moves to Odessa, Texas, where Flip starts his own business, which is an enclave of tourist cabins called the Antlers Court in a booming oil town. Flip is described as hardworking and difficult with a temper. It's a classic old school family with the mom, basically the primary caretaker and homemaker and the dad, a miserable asshole. (laughs) Maybe for you, Debbie. (laughs) Classic sitcom family. Both parents are alcoholics and it's a volatile home situation, obviously. Now, according to one of Peyton's first cousins, his name is Richard Kutu, he remembers visiting the home of his, you know, aunt and uncle during this period. He said that the Redfields would start drinking at mid-morning and continue long after midnight. (laughs) That's a long day of drinking. Now, he says that Lee Redfield had a violent temper, and when he was drinking, which was every day, that would sometimes result in the physical abuse of his wife. So, pretty bad situation. After Barbara hits her teen years, she starts getting noticed for her looks. Her mom encourages Barbara to use this to her advantage. So, from an early age, Barbara is, you know, basically dealing with disgusting men who are only too happy to use their horn dog ways to which, like, she wants to use men to like achieve success. Like she's fine with that. And her mom's like, do it. It's like, that's like a great option for her. Uh, And her mom is like on board with this. So it was definitely, I think, a way for her to also counteract her fear of men. And she sort of talks about this in the prologue. In her um, autobiography, she speaks that from a very early age, like her first memory is a dream she had where she's like staring at the man in the moon. And then while she's staring at the man in the moon, he's looking at her. And then the moon starts slowly coming towards her, crashing into her and pinning her against a rock. And all she can feel is the the moon's texture, which she describes as cold, clammy, and gelatinous. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, that's creepy. This
0: is like a really fucked up, dark version of that show, The Torkelsons. Oh, really? Well, the the main character on the Torkelsons, she would always pray to the man and the moon at the, like, the beginning of each episode, and then at the end of the episode, she'd be like, man and the moon.
1: Oh. Ooh. I'm just saying
0: that's the dark version of that. <laughs> yeah. Look, look, about 10 people know what I'm talking about, right. and they're laughing. I
1: know the ti- I know the, the title, The Torkelsons, but I honestly have no idea what that show is about. Brittany Murphy
0: was on it. Okay.
1: Is it just like a sitcom?
0: It was like a Disney Channel original TV show oh, in okay. the early 90s.
1: Okay. I mean, I definitely knew it, the title, but I Look, don't know what Look, some people know
0: what I'm talking about, Desi.
1: <laughs> I, I'm i sure. Um, I think we talked about this on the Brittany Murphy episode. We probably, probably Yeah. So that's a creepy dream. She later, when she gets money, she goes to a psychoanalyst to have her dreams analyzed. And the psychoanalyst told her and meant she was afraid of men and the power that they had over her. And it really is a, um, I mean, I guess it's, to say that it's predictive of what's to come is an understatement, but also probably pretty obvious and true for almost every woman. (laughs) What, that we're afraid of men? And the power they have over us. Like, that could be a little bit of a fear inside every woman, probably. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, to some degree or other, right? So, yeah. Um, So, from a young age, though, Barbara was pretty feisty, standing up to boys constantly. um, There's a whole story in this opening about her childhood where she's fighting with this boy over whether or not she's allowed to play in the stream next to him. Like he keeps telling her she's not allowed. And this whole back and forth between them ends with the boy finally asking her for a kiss. And she says to him that she would give him a kiss if he gave her a kitten. (laughs) That's not a bad trade. I know. I was like, Ooh, a kitten. (laughs) It never comes to fruition, but I do like that. She was like, well, how about this deal? Yeah. Um, so, Teenage Barbara quickly finds solace in movie houses. She loves going to the movies. And there's lots of boys who want to take her to the movies to try to get some. She's not really like putting out or anything like like that at this age. She's trying to get some stuff for her um, sexual favors, even at this early age. And she's quickly labeled a tease because she doesn't put out... you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals, and during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th, Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. Jimmy Cagney is coming into town to do like a local fundraiser at a theater. And she seems really excited about this in front of a pervy old man. He says that he happens to have two tickets to this fundraiser. And if she gave him a feel or two, he would take her as his guest to Jimmy, this fundraiser. Jimmy
0: Cagney said this.
1: No, the pervy, a pervy old man oh. said he would take her to this Jimmy Cagney fundraiser if she gave him a feel or two. And how old is she at this point? So she's like 15. Oh, Yeah. Barbara agrees. (laughs) Like she describes the incident. And like when I say this guy wanted to feel her too, that's literally all he did. Like he sat next to her in the theater during this fundraiser and like rubbed her legs. It's almost creepier (laughs) than doing like more for some reason. Like, Like, I just want to to feel a young girl's skin. (laughs) There's something really sick about it. She agrees to do it, though. She describes him kind of, you know, just rubbing her legs, and she has the time of her life. It was that night that solidified her desire to be an actress. (laughs) Sorry, Just that, like, that order of events just seems too perfect for me. Like, sure, I want to go to Hollywood and be molested by old, gross men. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But first, the rebellious 16-year-old decides to elope with her high school boyfriend, William Hodge. This is pretty much just a teenage rebellion act. Like she doesn't really care about this guy. Um, her parents don't even really fight her and, and eventually they both, everyone agrees to get the marriage annulled. She quits high school in 11th grade. Once again, her parents are like fine with it. They don't really believe that formal education was needed for success in life. And they don't object to her leaving uh, high school without a diploma. Now, in 1944, she meets her second husband. Um, He is a combat pilot named John Payton. The couple are married on February 10th, 1945, and they move to Los Angeles because her husband is enrolled at USC under the GI Bill. So he's going to college. Um, She, at this point, is really starting to feel restless. She's in Los Angeles. She's basically a housewife, and she's starting to express to her husband that she really has a desire to pursue modeling and acting. So she does start her modeling career at this point. She's hired by a photographer to just kind of take um, kind of, you know, sporting outfits, like that kind of catalog type stuff, I guess. She creates a portfolio, which gets the attention of a clothing designer called Saba of California. I can only imagine Their Fabulous Creations. They sign her on to a contract to model their junior fashions. She gets signed in 1947 to a bigger modeling agency. uh, And that's where she kind of moves into more print advertising, including for Studebaker cars and um, magazines called Charm and Junior Bazaar. Now, she eventually lands a screen test when she catches the eye of a casting director for RKO. But she faints during the screen test. Initially everyone on set is attributing that to nerves, telling her that it's pretty typical, people get nervous during these screen tests. But she later finds out that she's pregnant. In her book, she um said something that she was talking to the casting director and he's like, "Oh, never mind. You know, contact us in a year if you still want to pursue this after you have a baby and we'll take a look again." She's devastated because this was, like, the start of something for her. She's, like, you know, she's definitely of the mind of, like, a year? I have to wait a year for this fucking shit? To shit out this baby? She says in the book that she was so distraught that she contemplated suicide. Oh, my God. But never an abortion. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I thought that was an insane... This lady's wild. Like, how, (laughs) ma'am... That,
0: like that's really all you can say is ma'am ma'am please. ma'am ma'am please
1: i don't know why when i read that line i was like excuse me <laughs> uh anyway she she goes home to texas and she does have the baby who she names john lee payton and he's born on march 4th, 14th 1947 so his birthday's coming up oh, thanks, it was Desi. it was sorry um happy birthday john lee <laughs> So she moves back to L.A. and and she manages to kind of like start modeling again. So she has this like really heavy life now. She's a wife. She's a new mother. She's basically a professional model still. And this puts a strain on this couple's marriage, and they eventually separate in July of 1948. Now, she is really driven to become a successful actress. She has a lot of personality, as we can already tell, and she's just really focused on promoting her career, and she's out and about looking beautiful at all of the town's hot spots, basically, until she gets there. Now... She does gain a little bit of a reputation as a fun-loving party girl on the Hollywood club scene, and it's at one of those clubs that she catches the attention of William Goetz, who is an executive at Universal Studios. In January of 1949, he signs her at the age of 21 to a contract with a a salary of $100 per week, along with future stars Brock Hudson, Tony Curtis, and Piper Laurie. Um, So it's around the same time that she starts an affair with Bob Hope. He sets her up an apartment, um, but this affair basically ends in a bad way. And that is, at that same time, I think he's with Universal. They basically kind of end her contract, and he pays her off. Like, that kind of thing happens. I just love hearing stories about people like Bob Hope being, like, an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> tell you why because it's like he's such a goody two-shoes totally to know that he was fucking everyone every starlet in hollywood too because i've heard other stories about him it's incredible i love that kind of stuff because it's like yeah you all do it you fucking like and i'm not saying it in a judgmental way but i just like to know that we're all shitty (laughs) like not none of us are perfect like so not even you bob fucking hope fuck you bob hope i told (laughs) you No, I don't don't have a good personal vendetta against him, but it's just like nice to see like, yes, you want sex too. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) so her her year though ends on another low when one of her boyfriends beats up her landlady after she refuses to accept $30 for her rent when she was owed $112. So Barbara Payton is kind of an OG rent striker. (laughs) She does get a big film role, and that is the 1949 film noir Trapped, which co-stars Lloyd Bridges. Um, around that same time, she's also given the opportunity to make a screen test for John Houston's production um, of the MGM crime drama called The Asphalt Jungle. The part of the mistress of a mob-connected lawyer eventually goes to Marilyn Monroe. So that was Marilyn Monroe's I think first big movie role. In her memoir, she writes, As I ascended the ladder of success, I also ascended the ladder of excess. Barbara said she began to drink to relax after hard days on the set. According to her, she would only drink after dinner and up until she went to bed. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Is that like a really alcoholic way of thinking you're controlling the situation? that is
0: such an alcoholic way of thinking. Look, I'm only (laughs) drinking for eight hours straight, okay? Yeah, I
1: was like laughing. At least
0: it's not in the daytime.
1: um, Yeah, because her parents started mid-morning. So I'm sure in her mind, she's like, I'm waiting (laughs) till after sex. different than my parents. Yeah. And she, which I'm sure is typical alcoholic behavior, began to seek out others who had the same... Drinking habit. Well, of course. As she did. That's
0: called lower companions. Oh. You gotta have lower companions because then, see, I'm not as bad as that person.
1: Interesting. But
0: then when they start, stop hanging out with you then you got
1: a problem. Okay. Which has happened, which happened
0: to me, obviously. Because
1: you got worse and they didn't want to go there or well, vice they're, versa. They,
0: they're the lower quote unquote, lower companions are looking at you like, wow, she's
1: really a mess.
0: And then suddenly Ooh, you got it. Okay. Yeah.
1: Got it. So you want to keep on the same level in a way you just as much You just always are looking can. for
0: people worse off than you or yeah. people who are as bad as you, yeah. who can, yeah. you get the enabling cycle. You know how it is.
1: So, One of the men she meets around this time, who is her equal, she calls him Bud Keller in the book. I don't know who he is. She uses a few, um, what is it called?
0: Pseudonyms. Pseudonyms
1: uh, for certain people. uh, She describes him as a champion ruiner of girls. They meet at a bar at the Santa Anita racetrack. Um, I think they go up to like a fifty dollar window, and he has her spit on his money before he places a bet. That's hot. For good luck, like, I know. I was like, "Damn, the ch-
0: <laughs> what is the champion ruiner of women? The
1: champion ruiner of girls." So I think this guy was fucking like everyone in Hollywood. They he wasn't like described. I think he was like um, just like a high roller type. He wasn't like in the industry necessarily, is but he was. Hot? In,
0: Do you have a picture of him?
1: No, because he sounds she doesn't, hot. Yeah, I know, Bud Keller. Uh, even his pseudonym's kind of hot. <laughs> he asks her to marry him that day, and then she finds out, like, shortly, like, the next day, that he was already married with two kids. She describes him as a psychopathic liar and quickly develops an unhealthy codependent relationship with him. <laughs> oh, Barbara. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I relate, Look, for we're sure. laughing
0: because we relate.
1: Absolutely. I relate to Barbara because she is definitely, like, on top of her bullshit. She's like, look... <laughs> like she's she knows she's a fool sometimes do you know what I mean like and I say that with love I just like I know I've been stupid now he eventually becomes quite controlling and gets put in jail for three days after locking Barbara in her house because he didn't want her to go to an event promoting a film like it gets to that level they kind of break up and it seems like it just ended, which seems crazy to me considering how controlling he got at the end. But that that's sort of what she says happened. Now, she next hooks up with a black actor she doesn't name because a, a common thing with her is that she says something, they're an actor, I can't tell you their name because they become famous and you would know who they are. For some reason she's worried about this when she wrote this book. But um, this causes a lot of problems because she's dating a black actor and obviously it's a very racist time especially then in Hollywood they didn't want one of their starlets dating another actor who was black in fact a lot of those relationships were always put together by the studios now they initially kept the romance private but then barbara being barbara took him to took him as her date to a studio cocktail party and that was like pretty fucking outrageous to do at the time the next day the studio boss calls her in and threatens to ruin her but barbara told him to go ahead she had several films in the can and that news would tank those films in the south she called his bluff and won now this is a wild addendum to this story several weeks later she hires a black woman to be her like housekeeper and they're talking. She's like, you're really hot, basically. And the, she's like, were you an actress or a model? And she's like, no, but I used to be a sex worker. And she starts telling him all the um, big wigs she fucked when she was a sex worker, the housekeeper. One of her clients was the studio boss who had <gasps> who had tried to like ruin Barbara just weeks earlier. Now... This woman agrees to let Barbara take nude photos of her. <laughs> Barbara has them processed and brings them to the sh- to show the studio head. Uh, she basically puts them in an envelope, puts them on his desk, and is like, hey, look who, look who I met. And she's like, by the way, how's your wife? Oh, like my this God. kind of thing. He opens them up. He immediately hands her a script with a big part for her. And he's like, I hope you'll have a long career with us, Barbara. Uh, Wait so, a
0: minute. I want the housekeeper's memoir.
1: <laughs> Dude, the housekeeper sounds amazing. She
0: sounds like she's got a great memoir. Yeah.
1: Amazing. If
0: if you know who this woman is, <laughs> please email us Hollywoodcrime Have her people yeah. will have her grandkids contact us. Absolutely. We want to know if there's a memoir.
1: Definitely. Now, Barbara in her memoir says that the part was nice, but her real goal was to let him know she hated him. <laughs> So obviously I love that. That's definitely my kind of girl. (laughs) So at some point, a casting call goes out for a big role in a Jimmy Cagney movie, who we all know was Barbara's like childhood hero or crush or whatever. And she's desperate to get the role. When she walks in, there's dozens of blondes who kind of look like all versions of Barbara, which I've heard a million times from my friends who are like actors And she feels like it's impossible for her to stand out. They're all sitting there, perfectly coiffed, looking very cool. And Barbara had just walked up three flights of stairs and was like a sweaty mess, like walking into this room all sweaty with all these perfect bitches. She decides the only option she has is to be very memorable. When she walks into the casting director's office, she throws her shoes off, plops on the couch, and starts fanning her legs with her dress. And she says, shit, it's a hot fucking day. (laughs) Like the other woman who was like with the casting director was literally clutching her pearls. But what she did was the talk of the production company, and she landed the screen test and the part in a violent noir thriller called "Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye," which was in uh, which uh, was released in 1950. Now, William Cagney, who was Jimmy's brother and kind of like the production his production company's president or whatever, he's very smitten with Barbara and her sensual appeal. Um, He draws up a contract for her, which is a joint agreement between William Cagney Productions and Warner Brothers. And she lands a $5,000 per week salary, which is a really large salary for someone who has literally not done anything proving that she can be a box office straw. So, She's kind of a newcomer in this movie, even though she had done the previous film. She holds her own among a cast of Hollywood veterans, including Jimmy Cagney. She's basically playing the hardened, seductive girlfriend of his character, um, and double like a, it's like a double cross like type old school film noir. Uh, she gets a lot of great re- reviews for her acting in the movie. Um, so yeah, and her um, on screen charisma is also like talked about. She has a few other film appearances in movies with Gary Cooper, Gregory Peck, and one with Raymond Burr that was called Bride of the Gorilla. Have you ever heard of that horror film? <laughs> uh, I, I don't think so. It sounds so. Uh, interesting to me. Did you be read curious. The synopsis? I didn't get a chance to. It's a low-budget horror film from 1951 called Bride of the Gorilla. And we've talked about her marriages, her first two marriages. She has multiple affairs with other Hollywood people um, and just really rich guys. She will get married two more times in her life. Um, In her book, she also talks about having an affair with an unnamed starlet after they bonded over how poisonous men were. She would eventually visit this starlet in her dressing room to fuck. Barbara said people thought they were just having lunch, and Barbara, in her memoir... Oh, they were
0: having lunch. Yeah, that's
1: what she says. That is exactly what Barbara says. She cheekily said, they should have known what we were having for lunch. (laughs) Yeah. So, um in 1950 Peyton meets actor Franco Tone at Ciro's. And so begins the first part of a love triangle that would eventually ruin her career once and for all. You might remember Franco as a member of another famous love triangle between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. He eventually will marry uh, marries uh, Joan Crawford and they get divorced shortly after. Yes.
0: That's his kink. That's that's he likes breaking up friendships,
1: right? I guess.
0: He has a hard-on for love triangles.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a weird thing to go from that to, like, another one. Another, like, crazy. He's a
0: messy bitch who lives for drama. Although
1: this time, Barbara's the one who's being fought over, where I think in the other one, they were both coming over... But they were the women were fighting over him. He just likes drama. Yeah, he likes drama. So they announced their engagement at the store club in October of 1950. Barbara eventually testifies in his child custody hearing with his ex-wife, who goes on like the stand on the stand. His ex-wife calls Barbara a well-known tramp.
0: That's hot.
1: I was like, that's every ho's dream. Like that's To have dream. that on a court record is amazing. I would yeah. want the transcript and frame that line. Totally. It's amazing. He's very suspicious type, this show, And he sets up Barbara in her own apartment until they marry. And he also hires a PI to monitor her comings and goings. He actually bu- busts her having an affair, like walks in on her fucking an actor named Guy Madison, but he keeps the engagement on. In 1959, Franchot is in New York, and that is when she meets boxer and actor Tom Neal at a pool party. The two immediately hit it off and start fucking. This guy is like the opposite of Franchot. Like, Franchot is like a refined, well-dressed, elegant man. Tom Neal is like a boxer who turns into an actor. He's tough. He's like rough around the edges. You know that guy's hot. (laughs) Like, you can picture why... She might find both men appealing, but ultimately, like the passion is with this fucking rough and tumble boxer guy. He actually moves into the apartment that Franchot is paying for. Franchot is a cook. Cuck.
0: That <laughs> Basically, is, I mean, that is a bold move.
1: Yeah. She actually breaks off the engagement to Franchot and becomes engaged to Tom, but then she continues to see Franchot on the side. Of Tom, like this girl is Buck Wild. Now, on September fourteenth, nineteen fifty one, after spending the day with Franchot, the trio decide to hash thing out. Hash things out at Barbara's place. <laughs> sounds like
0: something sexy is going to happen.
1: Uh, it sounds like that, but yeah, things get wild. Now they start drinking, um, and things start getting like more heated as the drinking gets more intense if I, Like they're basically at the apartment that Francho play pays for that this guy's fucking his fiance. Who
0: thought this was a good idea? Unless, uh, you, unless they're all decided they're all gonna fuck each other. This yeah. is a bad
1: idea. Right. So they're sitting and talking. This is from her book. Um, like she does say like that Tom Neal is simple minded but very good in bed. <laughs> <laughs> like that's how she basically describes him in this memoir. Um, and that she kind of loves Franchot in a more mature way, but she doesn't definitely doesn't seem like she has the passion for him. They're going back and forth. Um, Francho keeps saying of Neil that um he he keeps calling Neil an out-of-work weightlifter. Whoa. Which is uh, you know, kind of dismissive of his acting career. At some point, Francho gets up, he's really drunk at this point, um, and he tries to throw a punch at Tom Neal Uh-oh. now what kind of sets him off is that when he gets up he trips over one of the barbells <laughs> of, of <laughs> one of Tom Neal's barbells and it kind of triggers in him like this guy's living here like he has his weights here and he like tries to throw a punch at him now Barbara describes this in her book as like throwing a pebble at an elephant <laughs> and the elephant roared and speared Franco to the wall with his tusks Tom throws about 10 fast punches that crush Tone's nose and give him a free ride to the hospital. Now now he got the shit beat out of him. Like his, his like cheekbone was crushed. His nose was broken. He got a um, concussion. He was in a coma for 18 hours after this beating. Like he got the shit beat out of him. Um, yeah i mean don't fuck with a box a former boxer when you're like a whatever that
0: teacher. is that is a hilarious move though that he got so angry at this can you picture weights. that
1: that punch i know exactly
0: yeah. what that punch looked like. i know i've seen it that drunken to throw
1: that drunken <laughs> flying
0: way too close to the sun punch
1: now obviously barbara you know she goes to french show and she's pissed at tom like come on, like this is a little over the top. <laughs> She's cradling this bleeding fiance of hers. She's like, it's so pissed at Tom for what she describes as a bestial attack. The police obviously come, the press are there. Cause this is like pretty big deal back then. This is like a tabloid dream. Um, this is the first time the people knew there was this triangle going on between these three, and everyone had opinion an opinion about it. Um, Barbara basically sits by Franchot in the hospital bed. Uh, both men at this point have proposed to her. Now Tom is saying, "I want to marry you." He has never proposed for her to her before. In fact. Barbara, uh, she's like she describes his proposal being as being as legitimate as counterfeit money. She thinks it's just a competitive thing. Like she doesn't want her to marry Franchot. Basically, the press is waiting for her answer. It's like The Bachelor or something. Like that's the story. Like who is she going to choose? It's just so demented. Uh, It's really demented. Um, Who do you think she chooses? She chooses Franchot. Those two get married on September 28th, so two weeks after this incident. Their marriage is volatile, to say the least. In early 1952, it explodes when they have a violent fight at the Warwick Hotel in New York City. Barbara is so distraught by this fight that she tries to end her life by taking sleeping pills that night, but survives. Um, Tone also discovers that Peyton had continued her relationship with Tom Neal even after they got married, and he files for divorce on the grounds of infidelity. Their divorce is finalized in May of 1952.
0: So they were married at two weeks before this fight, or they got married two weeks after the
1: fight. Right, and were pretty much done by the new year. Right. Uh, I mean, it didn't seem like a very grounded way to start a marriage. I was going to (laughs) say,
0: this doesn't seem like the healthiest foundation. And he's also, you know, just because he's not a boxer doesn't mean this guy's also like, he's not violent. Like he seems like a violent dude.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's had a PI follow her. He's controlling and weird too. Like Yeah, he sucks. Yeah. There's no one good here except for Barbara. Now the Peyton Neal relationship pretty much ends both of their Hollywood careers. Because whatever we think of Franchotone, he's definitely the bigger player in all of this. They kind of capitalize on their notorious press coverage by touring in a staged production of The Postman Always Rings Twice, which we probably all know, this 1946 film noir classic. They um, star in a B-movie western called The Great Jesse James Raid um, that was released in 1953. And Peyton sort of does some low-budget films for Hammer Films, which is like the British horror movie uh, studio, basically. And uh, in 1953, Peyton announces that she and Tom Neal are going to be married that summer in Paris. It never happens. The couple cancel their engagement and break up the following year. Shortly after their breakup, Neil marries a woman named Patricia Fenton, and she has his only child, a boy named Patrick Thomas Neil who was born in 1957. Now, Fenton will go on to die um from cancer pretty much soon after the baby is born. In her memoir, Barbara mentions this tragedy and she's like, "I felt sad for him." <laughs> she had like a very like non-emotional, like she was trying. She tried. Now, post-relationship for these two, Does not go well for either of them. I'm going to go into Tom Neal's post barbara life first, and then we'll get to the end of Barbara's life, because his end of his life is pretty wild as well. Now, his acting career is over at this point. His wife has died of cancer. He moves to Palm Springs and becomes a gardener. He later starts his own landscaping business, and in 1961, he marries a receptionist named Gail Bennett in Las Vegas. On April 2nd, 1965, police are summoned to the couple's Palm Springs home by Neal's attorney. They discover Gail's body on the couch, partially covered by a blanket with a gunshot wound to the back of her head. It's later determined that she had been shot with a 45 caliber gun on April 1st. Neil, who was not at home at the time when police arrived, becomes the immediate suspect. He surrenders to police on April 3rd and is indicted on one charge of murder on April 10th. At his trial, he admits that he and Bennett were separated at the time of her death, but said that her death was accidental. Um, He testified that on April 1st, he had returned to the couple's Palm Springs home from Chicago, where he had been living, to see if a reconciliation was possible. He said that the two began fighting after he accused her of sleeping with other men. He then claimed that she pulled out a gun, held it to his head, and the two began to struggle. During that struggle, he said that the gun accidentally discharged and killed her. Although prosecutors sought the death penalty, a jury convicted him of involuntary manslaughter on November 18, 1965. He ended up sending, uh, serving only six years in prison and was released on December 6, 1971. After his release, he went back to working as a landscaper and gardener. Um, in 1972, his body was found by his son. Uh, he had basically died of a heart attack. Um, so that's sort of his weird end. That's a tragic end. Yeah. Isn't it wild that he accidentally killed or whatever you he think? He allegedly <laughs> accidentally, accidentally yeah.
0: killed his wife.
1: Uh, Yeah. Wow. So let's get into Barbara's final years. Now, Barbara, <laughs> she really starts living hard and drinking hard Ultimately, this just destroys her physically and emotionally. In 1954, the shit really starts hitting the fan for her. She has an affair with a sculptor named Budo who disappears after trying to stab her six-year-old son to death with a butcher knife.
0: Holy shit. Yeah. In
1: 1955, she writes a bad check for $129 to buy booze and gets arrested. She's fined, and that fine is paid by the owner of Ciro's nightclub, um, whose name is Herman Hover, or Hover? In 1956, she moves into an apartment with her son, and her next-door neighbor is Mela Nurmi, a.k.a. Vampir- Vampira? Mm-hmm. Vampira? Vampira? Vampira, yeah. right? Okay. Uh, she eventually loses custody of her son in March of 1956 after her husband charges that she exposed him to profane language, immoral conduct, notoriety, unwholesome activities, and failed to provide a moral education for the boy, and she never sees her son again.
0: Who's the father
1: of this child again? Um, Peyton, the Air Force right. or the um, the military guy, right? So, in order to make money, she actually sells the story of her affair with Bob Hope to Confidential, the tabloid magazine, for one thousand dollars. I couldn't find out more about that, or didn't really have time to deep dive into that. But I kind of love that she was like, "Fuck it, here's my stories. Like, give me some fucking money." Um, she's offered the option now. By, by authorities to be admitted to a detox unit. And she said, I'd rather drink and die. In 1957, her family tries to get her back on her feet and help her. They help her finance a restaurant in Riverside, which is sort of inland empire. It is inland empire. Uh, so it's like about Riverside County, uh, an hour and a half from Hollywood, something like that. So this restaurant is called The Boar's Head. I didn't have time to look for the menu, but it sounds meat heavy to me. She quickly abandons that to fly to Chicago where she joins her ex-pal, ex-starlet Lila Leeds to become a high-end escort at the Drake Hotel. Now, Lila had some previous notoriety because she was arrested with Robert Mitchum when he was busted for pot. that's hot yeah that is a hot dude when i read that i was like i am fucking jealous i've (laughs) never been more jealous of someone i've never heard of until this moment so they're living it up at the Drake hotel but at some point barbara decides that she wants to make a comeback in hollywood rachel it's 1958. She heads back to LA and immediately holds a press conference. Now, she's like still pretty young at this she's point. She's really young. She's like
0: in her 20s still, right? She or might 30. No,
1: 58. Yes, yeah, she, she might be just 30. Like she's young. Yeah, she's still pretty young. So, she heads back to LA, holds this press conference basically announcing her comeback, like pretty confidently, I would say. I would never do that. <laughs> Uh, the comeback doesn't happen, and she descends more into her alcoholism and works a variety of jobs, including a hostess at the Saratoga. She works at, a, at a, dry, a dry cleaner. She works as a gas station attendant, a shampoo girl, and a cocktail waitress at a strip club. In 1961, she moves to the Valencia Apartments on Sunset Boulevard and begins working full time as a sex worker. She is eventually evicted and becomes homeless. On February 7th, 1962, Barbara is arrested for prostitution when she offers to have sex with an undercover officer for $40. The rest of 1962 continues going awfully for Barbara. In July, she walks into Hollywood police station stinking drunk wearing a one-piece a white bathing suit and a white sweater and gold slippers and claims a teenage gang attempted to rape her outside her motel room. The cops basically don't investigate it and send her on her way. The next day she is found passed out on a bus bench wearing the same clothes that she wore in the police station and is arrested for public intoxication. She um, is arrested later that month for drunk and disorderly conduct. Now, a writer named Robert Polito who um, his father worked at a bar called Coach and Horses back in the day. And he saw 34-year-old Peyton there in 1962. He described her this way. Barbara Peyton oozed alcohol even before she ordered a drink. Her eyebrows didn't match her brassy hair. Her face displayed a perpetual sunburn and maps of veins by her nose. She carried an old man's pot belly. Her gowns and dresses were creased and spotted. She had gained weight to the point where she was 200 pounds at this point and she didn't really inhabit a character as much as she did impersonate a starlet. So she was still doing the starlet thing, um, in a really disheveled state, which is just an awful sad thing that she had no one helping her. Like it just seems wild to me that no one was there for her. In 1963, she meets a guy, uh, who I think they're just hooking up basically. And at some point after they fuck, he says to her like, Hey, uh, can I be your pimp? He, and he's kind of a nice guy. I know that maybe he doesn't sound like a pimp would be, but he's kind of like, look, I'm, I have a thing for white women and blondes. He's a, he's like a black guy. And he's like, you're a little over the hill and you're kind of not that you're not, you're not like in your heyday, but I want to help you out. So I'll send you out and find Johns for you. Uh, as maybe, and it's actually kind of sweet. He's like, treats her really well. He basically, she doesn't earn money, but he pays for her food and living expenses and that kind of arrangement. Uh, She does get sent out to a man, a John who, who like fucking stabs her. Uh, She gets like basically 38 stitches. He kind of like stabs her in the stomach and like a pretty severe um, attack. And this guy helps her throughout that too. So he is like kind of a Good person in her life let um, me guess the cops don't do shit no the cops don't do shit now in September of that year she's once again arrested for prostitution and serves 22 days in jail at the end of 1963 she is offered $2,000 to write her autobiography I am not ashamed with a former gossip columnist named Leo Guild By 1965, she is now addicted to heroin and living at the Wilcox Hotel in Hollywood. In 1966, I'm sorry, (laughs) (laughs) 66, stop it, schompernado. That's what I meant to do. She moves on to the Hollywood um, Palms Hotel where she works as a maid to pay her room fare or whatever it's called. In 1967, sanitation workers find Barbara passed out next to a dumpster on Sunset and Fairfax and she is hospitalized. So following this hospitalization, she is driven by a county social worker to her parents' home in San Diego. She tells her family's neighbors, I never wanted to be with them. I never wanted to see them again, but here I am and I got all the booze I want. That's because her parents are both still heavy drinkers. And they basically drink with Barbara, they just start having these un- unabated drinking binges as a family now. She even gets so drunk that she crashes her dad's Cadillac, like she goes out driving and completely totals his Cadillac. Now, at some point, Barbara gets so haggard looking, even her parents get worried. I've seen pictures. Yeah. Yeah. So they are begging her at this point to seek medical help, which she refuses. On May 8th, 1967, her father finds her body on the floor of the bathroom. She basically dies of heart and liver failure due to cirrhosis of the liver, which we all know is caused by drinking a ton. Now, there's just the end chapter I wanted to read about Barbara. It's when she is actually working on this book, with the guy that I mentioned, he, um, while they're writing the book together, he goes to find, he's like looking for her and he finds her at a bar, of course. So he goes there and meets her at the bar. She doesn't even recognize him when he shows up and he's like, Hey, it's me. We're working on the book together. Like that kind of thing. She's like, Oh yeah. So he, she, she says to him, I, Oh, I thought you were trying to pick me up. Like she thought he was like there to pick her, pick up like, like a guy just right. sleazy guy at the bar. So she remembers who he is. They go back to her apartment to start working. Like she's like in this, in her memoir, she's like, oh, pulling out scrapbooks, like show, like it's that kind of thing. It is really fun for her. So I'm glad she kind of had that moment to write this book because I definitely think it was like fun um, they get home. She had on stretch pants, a sweater and no shoes. Um, she asks if it's okay if she gets undressed while they work, like just to, she likes to wear her shirt. He describes her as basically working in like a button down shirt and just underwear. So, um, she says that her pants are tight in the crotch and she wants to like get out of them. He's like, of course, um, they sit down and start talking. He had previously asked her about what she felt about her downfall, basically. So she kind of finally answers that question after she pours some wine for both of them. She says, as to your question, when you're on top, there isn't any other way to go but down. Men, pills, liquors, lesbians, pressures and disappointments all had a hand in it. And you know what else? Broken promises. I was from a small town. I believed everybody, but no one was telling the truth. And your body he asked her, you're a young girl still, Barbara. Why have you let yourself go like that? I didn't need to be pretty anymore, she said, uh, which didn't make sense to this guy, but I kind of feel like it makes sense. And then she said, I'm not ashamed. I once made $5,000 a week, and now I'm a prostitute, but I'm not ashamed. I contribute more now to humanity than I did as an actress. Around the same time, an old friend of hers ran into Barbara, and she said to Barbara, Barbara, where have you been? And Barbara said to her, I've been living. Don't judge me harshly just for a living. And that's sort of the end of the Barbara Payton story. That's a really sad story, isn't that wild? I like I've like read
0: her Wikipedia page before and like looked at. I've like gone down a rabbit hole looking at pictures of her like in her later days, and it's just like really fucking sad. And like obviously, you know, we've seen lots of these these kinds of tabloid stories are really popular to this day, right? I would say we hit the peak of it in at least in my generation in like the mid two
1: thousands with like Lindsay Lohan, Brittany, and, and Britney, Lindsay, yeah.
0: and yeah, and mm-hmm. like how the press honestly loves these stories of young women...
1: They want to see these downfalls.
0: ...suffering, people suffering. And uh, and some uh, male actors, too. They yeah. like seeing suffering.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think the thing that's notable about her is she really did seem to be self-aware and kind of, like, know what was happening and kind of not really asking for sympathy, which is sort of uh, unusual, I think, For that period, especially to write this kind of memoir where you don't look good. Do you know what I mean? Like, a lot of people want themselves to look sort of saintly in these memoirs. Like, even if something negative had, they want to have the redemption part. And she's just like, nope, that's what happened. There's no redemption here. I'm in a roach infested apartment. And I was like a big star. Like, that's it. Right. You know? So it's like wild to see someone just. Be kind of brazen about what happened to them in that way. But I think very um interesting and yeah. kind of uh helpful. I mean it's good. I think it's good to see like this is what can happen like yeah. to anybody. Like right. right. No matter what. That's the reality. Um yeah. So cool. Well, I'm
0: glad we finally got around to doing this story. I know it's been on our list for a while. Yeah,
1: I think I always hesitated because I didn't know if there was enough information, but then I found that Tom Neal also had the weird crime. (laughs) And then when I found her book, I was like, okay, at least I have all of this other stuff. Like it had way more information. Whenever it's like these kinds of stories, I want to hear
0: it straight from the person.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's her story. And there's definitely way more in the book to look into. Um, So if you want to check out the book, it's definitely worth the read. It's like a very fast read for sure. It's called I Am Not Ashamed. I'm Not Ashamed. (laughs) I'm Not Ashamed. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, cool. Yeah, that's All that. Right. We'll post some hex.
0: We'll see you guys on Friday. Bye. Bye.